this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In Episode 5 of the Forensic Advancement Season, Just Science interviews Katie Featherson, the Laboratory Director for the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, Brian Hoey, the Director of the Missouri State Highway Patrol's Crime Laboratory Division, and Jeremy Triplett, the Laboratory Supervisor for Kentucky State Police, to discuss the ASCLAD Rapid DNA Committee efforts. In addition to implementing rapid DNA technology in law enforcement units for investigative leads, the technology can be used in Disaster Victim Identification, DVI. The American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors recognizes that the forensic science community can aid these efforts. Listen along as Katie Featherson, Brian Hoey, and Jeremy Triplett discuss how the law enforcement, DVI, and forensic laboratory subcommittees of the ASCLAD Rapid DNA Task Force provide coordination and oversight, assisting in facilitating communication along with developing best practices and guidance documents. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. Today we are at the 2018 meeting of the American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors in Atlanta in mid-May. Today we're going to be talking to three guests who are each working on subcommittees of overall effort in rapid DNA that ASCLAD has been involved in. We're going to be talking with Katie Featherston from the Colorado Bureau of Investigation Denver Lab, where she is the laboratory director. She started there as a DNA analyst and doing PCR from the get-go, or did you learn some of the old techniques too? I started out with RFLP in a private laboratory back in 1993. Okay, well there you go, that gives you cred in <laughs> DNA. If we also have with us Mr. Brian Hoey, an MBA from the William Woods University with an MS from Northern Illinois, who is now the director of the Missouri State Highway Patrol's Crime Laboratory Division, also having started in Missouri in 1993 in the DNA profiling section. And I know because we heard beforehand that you had actually spent some time at Quantico learning RFLP. So Yes. And then, last but certainly not least, uh, the one and only Jeremy Triplett, laboratory supervisor for the Kentucky State Police with a master's degree from the University of Florida, drug chemistry supervisor for the Kentucky State Police Central Forensic Laboratory in Frankfurt, also served as the drug chemistry technical leader for six of Kentucky State Police's Laboratory branches from 2017 to 16. So you're a drug guy, Jeremy. I am. Thanks for having me. I'm kind of the fish out of water here. So I'm sure everyone kind of wonders why in the world you would talk to a drug guy. No, I actually think it's kind of cool because the DNA people are now getting the kinds of questions that all the people who have been trying to do field identification of drugs have been getting for years. Yeah, I've tried to get my DNA section to understand they have a lot to learn from drug chemistry for a long time, but they, you know, it's taken a while for them to really fully grasp that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Katie, you're in charge of the ASCLAD Rapid DNA Forensic Lab Internal Committee, the first of the three committees that we're going to talk about. So tell me, Katie, this is something that's being done in law enforcement a lot, and so the forensic community 
it does have its concerns. Back in August of 2017, I pulled together several different individuals who were part of this community of rapid DNA. We had vendors who were kind of there. We had laboratory directors. We had people from FEMA there all discussing rapid DNA. And it was at that point in time that we recognized as crime laboratory directors that we really wanted to have a seat at the table and really wanted to have an opportunity to think through how this technology could be introduced in a variety of manners. But since we are the stewards of the quality of forensic science evidence, uh, we are always looked at to provide guidance to law enforcement whenever new technology comes in. We really wanted to be proactive on this and come up with some guidance documents or some pieces of information that laboratory directors and other people could use in order to introduce this technology either in a law enforcement agency into the laboratory itself. So that's kind of where all of this blossomed from and this idea of putting together these three different committees within ASCLAD. Does Colorado have rapid DNA instruments fielded at this point? No, we do not. Although we uh, do collect arrestees at the time that they are arrested, we are what they refer to as a charging state, meaning that we have to wait in order to process those and enter them into the National DNA Database. We have to wait for charges to be filed. Mm -hmm. On average, in the state of Colorado, that takes 21 days for that to occur. So in those 21 days, what happens is that the samples are collected, they are sent to our laboratory, entered into a computer database, we wait to confirm charges that are filed, and then we process them in the laboratory itself. However, being from Colorado, I am lucky in that we embrace a lot of technology, and so <laughs> I have had the opportunity to work with both vendors and both uh, rapid DNA instruments um, within our laboratory to just be able to see how they actually work. Okay, that's fantastic. So the second committee, which is Brian Hoey's committee, and Brian is from Missouri, the ASCLAD Rapid DNA Law Enforcement Agency's External Committee. So if the Forensic Lab Internal Committee is really about trying to talk about quality assurance standards, what is it that your committee is really focusing in on? So what we're trying to do is create some of the same documents that Katie was talking about uh, for external outreach to law enforcement agencies. We're aware that law enforcement, police departments, sheriff's departments are going out and buying these instruments and running them. And in a lot of instances, they're creating their own databases or they're partnering with private laboratories to run databases for them. And all of the quality that DNA has known for the past 25 years with the quality assurance standards and CODIS and all those types of things, that same type of quality may or may not be in these agencies when they're running these rapid DNA instruments or if they're taking them out to crime scenes and things like that. And the one thing that's earned us the public trust over the years has been all these quality assurance standards. Every time we talk to people, we go to meetings, or we talk to the public, we go to legislators, we say, you know, we have all this quality built into our systems. We're audited and things like that. We don't know if that's happening externally in law enforcement agencies. So what we want to do is we want to reach out to crime laboratory directors to say, okay, some of this may be going on in your backyard. Mm -hmm. And it's probably in your best interest to reach out to your local law enforcement partners. And if they're doing it, help them. If they're interested in doing it, help them. Because there's no reason for us to be fearful of it. It's going to happen anyway. The zeitgeist is already happening. It's probably best for us to, to partner with our law enforcement agencies to make sure that we give them the tools to do it correctly. Well, yeah, it is kind of surprising. It reminds me of other kinds of systems. Tasers are a good example. 
once police decided that they loved it, it's like they were everywhere the next day. And this is the same thing happening now to some extent within rapid DNA. All of a sudden, some of these agencies are just falling in love with it overnight and deciding they're going to start deploying it whether they've thought through some of these quality issues or not. Precisely. And, you know, they're going to have successes. And their successes are going to help out the forensic field. It's all going to move forward together. But what concerns me as a lab director is when they have the errors that we see all the time. If we have an error internally in a crime laboratory, we write ourselves a corrective action request. Oftentimes we self-report to our accrediting agencies. We have a process to go to root cause analysis to find how the error occurred. If errors start occurring at these agencies, and I'm not saying that they will or are, but if and when these uh, errors start occur, are those same mechanisms in place? And I think crime laboratory directors can partner with these agencies to help them get these systems in place. Because we've done it, right? We've been mm -hmm. through it for the past 25 years. And, and we could show them how to do it a lot more quickly than it took us to grasp the concept. Sure. And then Jeremy Triplett, our third guest, your committee is the Disaster Victim ID Committee, which is actually quite interesting because it's a little bit different take on rapid DNA, which can be enormously valuable in a mass disaster or mass casualty kind of framework. Yeah, it's super fascinating. It's something that I've really I've enjoyed working with the team and learning about it. They brought me on, obviously not for biology expertise, but I volunteered to lead this subcommittee more or less like a project manager, not necessarily a subject matter expert. So we were sitting down and talking about the different ways that rapid DNA could be used in uh, the United States or the world, really as it touches the crime lab community. And can we think outside the box, what other applications could there be? And we see several, especially federal agencies. One of Homeland Security exactly. is all over rapid yeah, DNA. Yeah, DHS and FEMA are all over rapid DNA. And so we developed some ideas we thought is a great place to develop a subcommittee to explore how crime laboratories who were equipped with some of this instrumentation could facilitate, could help in the time of a mass disaster. So there was a big learning curve, but it's been a really um, interesting experience learning about that. And we have some pretty interesting ideas, I think, about how we could interface or assist federal government, DHS, local governments in the time of a crisis in particular regions. So it's been fun. So one of the ideas is that there's going to be a proliferation of rapid DNA instruments out there. And in the event of a mass disaster, even like family reference samples, it would be nice to have a suite of rapid DNA instruments that Definitely. could just be in the family center. Yes, absolutely. Thinking about having it from the traditional morgue type applications and from the family assistance center applications, family reference samples, families coming in to maybe identify or uh, you know, find lost loved ones. There's lots of applications. The identification of remains. So that's the concept of where you could use it. We see two distinct areas in a mass disaster response setup. One would be the typical morgue applications identifying the deceased. The others could be some familial situations or some familial comparisons in the Family Assistance Center as families report that their loved ones are missing. When we're thinking about how ASCLAD and forensic laboratories could assist, we started talking about sort of a response network. So one of the neater ideas that we've really kicked around throughout this past year has been what if laboratories already equipped with a rapid instrument and already with trained operators. What if we had a network of willing laboratories that in the event of a mass disaster, mass casualty event could deploy and then assist those family assistance centers and the morgues 
on site and already have the instrumentation and the, and the personnel ready to deploy. They come on site within the structure and organization of Department of Homeland Security and FEMA or whoever's sort of got jurisdiction over this particular incident. They could come in and just facilitate running samples. They could help. They could uh, provide answers on site in a really rapid time period with really fascinating technology faster than using traditional DNA analysis techniques. So it's been interesting to investigate that opportunity. Sure. So just one more question before we try to shift back over into the current use in law enforcement, and that is, so are the systems really, are they strong enough in terms of the information that they're producing to be able to do familial associations? That's a really difficult problem. It is, and I think that we are at a place where many of the vendors are are right there. They're working on that. Within the last year, we've seen updates to software from several different vendors um, for that express purposes. So I think we're there. I mean, I think it's getting better all the time. And I, it might have been concerning whether we could handle that a few years ago. But seeing some of the vendors and how they've developed software in the last year and how they're eager as well to provide applications for the DVI scenarios, I'm confident. I think we're there, yeah. Sure, it all depends on confidence. You can report off of it, right? Well, yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Back yeah, in 2011, I don't know if you remember, but there was a uh, F5 tornado in Joplin, Missouri that hit. And our laboratory got involved, and we identified a lot of the victims, not just the laboratory you know, DNA, but we did it through you know, other means as well, and there was some fingerprints involved and stuff. But the laboratory responded, and we also worked in DNA-type the families from the Family Reference Center. And one of the things we found out in our hot wash afterward is in a situation like that, the loved ones, the family members want to help. They want to come, and, and they want to do something. So you get you know, second cousins twice removed coming in and wanting to give a DNA sample if it's going to help. And so generally speaking, we took the samples and we ran them, but we had to transport those from the Family Reference Center to our laboratory to run them and then get a DNA profile, put it into a database, et cetera. It was a lot of work. If we had a rapid DNA instrument there, the families can watch you take that swab and put it in there. They can know that they're helping. They can see that swab go into the instrument, and they can see that instrument run, and they can know that they're helping in real time. And I think that would be a really helpful for those loved ones who are in that space, you know, with that missing family member. I, I think that would be a real help that they can actually see these instruments right there running, cranking out human beings doing the work right there. Oh, I love that. That's great. I, the high-tech, light-touch kind of approach mm -hmm. really does enormous amount to humanize the work. It does. Difficult. It adds a lot of value to that socialization, you know, of, of all those folks. Yeah, it's, I, we probably all have examples of really good opportunities where this, this technology could be used. I remember, it, even though I'm a drug chemist by training, one of the earlier years when I was at Kentucky State Police, there was a, an airplane, a commercial airliner at a local airport, took off on the wrong runway. It was too short for the size of the aircraft. Didn't make it up in the air, and all the passengers perished. There was only one survivor on the entire plane. And I know that we did a lot of work at KSP on a lot of the victims in that incident, and it took forever. I mean, it took a really long time. I just remember it was a big deal in the area, so the news media was everywhere, and I was a really young, precocious forensic scientist, but eager to... an older, precocious forensic Better, better than an older, yes. Now I'm just older and precocious. Yeah, so I was 
extremely curious about what's going on. I was watching it, kind of watching out the windows, but they had to bring, you know, these giant refrigerated semis in, and it took a very long time with our staff that was just exhausted by the time it was over from working nonstop for what seemed like probably the better part of two or three weeks. And it's fascinating to think about what could be possible. Certainly don't want to recreate the uh, situation, but what if this technology was in place at the time? What if we could have done that for this? It would have been interesting to see the difference. In Colorado, several years back, you know, within the laboratory, we had a, a horrible missing person and homicide of a young woman, and the police headed out and, and started talking to everybody in the neighborhood. We had a really good DNA profile. We had put it into CODIS, but we were not getting a CODIS hit. And so law enforcement went out and started talking, started discussing this, looking at the neighborhood, and asking for volunteer samples from everybody that they came in contact with. And they were getting these voluntary DNA samples from the neighbors in that particular area. And they were sending them to the laboratory, and we were going through the process of doing the DNA analysis. But at the time, the DNA analysis, even on a fast track, having multiple people there, running overnight, it took us a couple, two, three days in order to be developing these DNA profiles from over 500 individuals. And again, we worked over the course of a couple of weeks. It would be an interesting process to think about if you were to have a rapid DNA machine or have these available to you, taking those same 500 samples and processing them, maybe not necessarily with your DNA scientists who do all the mixture interpretation and all of the rest of that, but training up a couple of people to be able to run those a little closer to where that canvassing in the neighborhood was actually occurring to be developing these DNA profiles and more immediacy. That's what we did with the Joplin thing. We had so many DNA staff in the laboratory working all weekend. It was a Memorial Day weekend. And it was three full days of people, you know, we were doing shift work and everything. And my staff was just unbelievable because they, they figured out, they wanted to work around the clock. They figured out their own schedules. They were trading things off. They did a fantastic job. But it's really nice to know there's technology coming down the pike that we can avoid that in the future. We can avoid the, the humans having to go through all that. You know, there's another interesting thought to the network. This is all really, really interesting. One thing I hadn't thought about it, it's not my idea. It was brought up on my committee throughout the course of this year was we think about, well, why would we need a rapid instrument to come on site in a location in the event of a mass disaster event? Well, what if the mass disaster event also took out the capabilities of the local crime lab? Now there's no forensic DNA capability. So that's just another benefit to some of these instruments in the DVI scenario, especially as portable and rugged as you know many of them are. That's one thing um, we don't do in state governments. So we don't build in redundancy very well. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you think, well, now we have all the instruments we need on site, right? But what if the same event that's going to require the analysis takes out that capability? Yeah, well, it's happened. New Orleans yeah. is a good example of that. Yeah, right? yeah hurricane, absolutely. All that is fantastic. That's great vision and obviously something that is going to happen, and we're very, very fortunate about it. A lot of it, though, isn't going to happen if the quality assurance and the confidence of the public isn't maintained. And struck actually because, not necessarily because of drug identification, but of tox work. Because you wouldn't ever think of putting a breath alcohol instrument out there without you're going to have a certain level of training, you're going to have a certain kind of calibration, and, and, and it's going to be controlled by somebody who knows something about forensic science, right? And that's kind of what you all are trying to do, right, Katie? 
we are looking at that parallel between how breath alcohol is handled and how law enforcement takes a look at certifying those individuals and how could that be paralleled with ensuring that the users of a rapid DNA instrument outside of the laboratory, how could we as laboratory directors who understand the process, who understand quality, transfer that knowledge quickly and then ensure that whoever is running it is capable and understands the limitations of the instrument, not just these great benefits that it could bring. And may, in the same time, create robust enough protocols and training materials so that when you do have turnover at those levels, somebody can come in and operate that instrument, follow a robust training program, or be trained by somebody to jump on an instrument. In our laboratories, we obviously have robust training programs that take years oftentimes you know it takes us almost two years to train a DNA analyst anymore and we want to make sure that when we have that turnover out in that field the person coming in is trained well enough to operate that instrument or the instruments robust enough that the person can operate it with minimal training. In breath alcohol states usually will do a certification program even every officer out there who's ever gonna have somebody do a breathalyzer test is gonna get certified or or have been recertified within some particular period of time are you all heading in that direction for the rapid DNA? Or haven't you decided yet? Or is that a very sensitive question? It's a sensitive question, isn't it? It is a very sensitive question. Um, date certification is, is something that's a little harder to go after. I think what we're concentrating on is what would be the knowledge that they would need? How could we partner with law enforcement? But that's a really good question because we've been focusing on the internal laboratory, external law enforcement agencies, DVI. We haven't even talked about state regulatory bodies or legislators and getting into this space. It's not my story to tell, but Oklahoma had a, as I understand it, a legislator changed their databasing law predicated on a local law enforcement agency that wanted to run rapid. And okay. so the so legislators just went in there and just... That could be very dangerous. They yeah, could all of a sudden it, not it, be a CODIS lab. Yeah, it could be. So <laughs> so when we start talking about the idea, the concept is, is a good, solid concept. Let's certify or, or something like that, all the people that are going to run these instruments. But that would be a probably a hierarchical, pyramidal-type certifying body or, or a legislative body or a committee or something like that that would that would be doing that and I don't think we've even gotten that far in our outreach yet. I think it really also depends upon where these instruments are located and who is going to be expected to be running the instruments. So for example we have been looking in Colorado we spent a lot of time last year analyzing a variety of sample types with the newest DNA chemistry and after we did several thousand samples, we went back and we analyzed the data to see whether or not we can predict, you know, what is the percentage of times that you swab a steering wheel, for example, that you can expect to get a CODA-suitable profile. Our numbers came out to be about 20% of the time, which means when I go through and I actually process, or my scientists, I'll process five steering wheel cases one of those cases is going to give me something that I'm going to be able to help law enforcement with. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be nice to know ahead of time which of these five is the one that I really should be concentrating on? So that is a, a thought that we have had of using the rapid DNA system to be able to give me a better prediction as to which one of those particular steering wheel swabs should actually be submitted to the laboratory to go through the entire process using all of the quality guidelines that we need to do and entering it into CODIS under all the guidelines that are currently available to us. 
in that particular scenario, we are looking at having maybe a technician that is also part of the laboratory, is trained as part of the laboratory, who would continually do this update of their training, their knowledge, skills, and abilities, and they would be processing through to help the law enforcement and to guide what is actually submitted to the laboratory. I think that looks way different than if you were to put a rapid DNA instrument you know, in a police department and you have this is completely outside of any laboratory guidance or any laboratory oversight. And I think that looks way different and what you would need to do and how you would need to train those individuals looks different because of the way that it is being utilized. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that you get concerned about is the fact that crime scene is a good example of this, right? You know, there's this particular level of training in crime scene investigation that you would like to see regardless. And not, not even all CSIs meet those kinds of training standards, but it does certainly vary. This adds a layer of complexity. It could be a very powerful layer of complexity, yes, right? Yes, it does. You know, and so kind of building that into all sorts of training regimens, it isn't just like about rapid DNA. It's about a fairly wide variety of training regimens you might want to try to pull this into. Right. You look at the idea of, you know, one of the things that I teach my staff immediately is safety protocols or proper PPE or what is DNA contamination and how does that look. So when I get ready to introduce a new instrument, such as rapid DNA, into my laboratory, everybody has a certain knowledge base that I can work from, that I can then train from. That is not necessarily true when you start putting these kinds of instruments into a law enforcement agency. That's very basic laboratory protocol knowledge may or may not be there. And so those are, are things that the external committee is really kind of needing to, you know, will be taking a look at. Brian, are you looking at that? Yeah, that and a, and a lot of other things, not the least of which is, you know, you can make the comparison with breath alcohol, mm -hmm. and you can also make the comparison in Jeremy's world, like the handheld ramen instruments that are out there for drugs. Right. And Please. we can build quality around those, et cetera. But with DNA, we have another layer of complexity, and that's databasing. So if we are, are going to now take these instruments and we're going to jam a swab in them, we're going to get a DNA profile, we can't send that to a crime laboratory to go into CODIS, at least in that particular scenario. So a lot of law enforcement are now creating their own databases. They're going out and swabbing their citizens, and they're creating these databases. It's a whole other level of quality. It's a whole other level of complexity, and it's a whole other issue with privacy. And so it's another, another thing that my committee is taking on is how do we educate our law enforcement community and our policymakers, et cetera, about the privacy issues of creating your own databases, and are those going to run afoul of already established state law on, mm -hmm. on databases? So I know your work is still in its fairly early stages. So the obvious question is, where is the receptivity in law enforcement right now? Are you seeing a lot of agencies looking for this kind of guidance, or has there been some pushback like, you know, we're, we're having a great time over here. Please don't spoil the party. The agencies that I've talked to, and admittedly, there have been, it's been few, but the agencies that I've talked to have been very receptive to wanting some sort of guidance. They want to do it right. They want to participate in this ecosystem, and they don't want anything to go wrong either. So that's encouraging. And if we can start from that foundation, I'm encouraged that we'll move forward. And I haven't had an opportunity, at least in my state yet, to 
go out and dress the police chiefs associations or the sheriff's associations in mass yet to actually start you know talking about this because I haven't we haven't adopted the technology in my laboratory so right now I'm only operating kind of like Jeremy said as a project manager on this ASCLAD committee but I'm really excited to roll up my sleeves and get out there and start you know talking to law enforcement and finding out those types of questions and how receptive they are well, I know that the Forensics Committee of the International Association for Chiefs of Police has looked at rapid DNA, at least with respect to trying to understand from their own perspective that, you know, what's going on with rapid DNA and kind of just making sure they're educated. Is your all's effort linked into IACP at this point yet, or is that something still to come? Yes, we have committee members who are on IACP and ASIA and, and all of the partnering agencies and committees. So we are tapped into all of those associations. Again, it's, it's an ecosystem that we're all trying to operate in. We want to make sure that we have consistent information going out as, it, as we develop it. Mm -hmm. It's a difficult problem, I've found, because, as you all know, there's 18,000 law enforcement agencies out there in the United States. Even stepping your toe into, like, IACP or any of the associations in policing gives you an idea of the sheer magnitude of the Absolutely. education effort. I think having the forensic science community talk with a kind of a unified voice and saying kind of this is how it should be done is going to be extraordinarily important going forward. And then trying to make certain that we, we create guidance documents, we put them up on ASCLAD's website, you know, make sure they're vetted with other organizations and other bodies and other committees such as SWIGDAM. And that's going to be awfully important to partner with SWIGDAM, the OSACs, the FBI, to make sure that, you know, we're not running countercurrent to some of the messaging that they're doing. It's a big space we're all working in, and everyone's kind of working on their own little piece of it. Jeremy, you've worked in some of the stuff, like you were alluding to, and like ramen and things of that nature. I mean, do you think that there are some parallels here in terms of how things will be done or what the best way to forward is? Yeah, it's super fascinating. As we've been sitting here talking, and Katie's talking about uh, sort of triaging some particular samples about which is the best one to take forward. I kind of laughed a little bit. It's, so I actually had a NIJ grant funded project I worked on several years ago about uh, Raman spectroscopy and how we could use it to triage liquid samples in clandestine labs for the most probative sample to go ahead and do some liquid-liquid extractions and proceed on to further analysis. And we were trying to use a quick and fast technique to, to screen in a way the most probative sample. And so it was really fascinating. It tells me even more that we're not really, you know, sometimes we goof around and say it's the biologist versus the chemist, but we really tackle a lot of the same questions. Mm -hmm. And um, it's interesting to see how they play out in the different disciplines, but in that way, I found that really interesting. And then, of course, I see the parallels with roadside testing, with uh, the new Raman handheld devices that are out there. We see a lot of agencies moving from the old color metric tests, a lot less specific to something like uh, Raman technology, which is a, a real miniaturized laboratory device. And so we're grappling with the exact same questions. now. It's much more simplified in the way that we're not databasing anything. You know, no one's particular personal information is going into a database. Or we avoid that massive complexity. But we still, we talk about the same things, right? So 
what is the sufficiency of training for that officer to use uh, a handheld Raman um, spectrometer on the roadside? What is our responsibility for their training? Should they be certified? Should they be retrained? We have the same questions. So, and then we even have uh, now a few labs I'm aware of. It's become now full circle, where now they're talking about well, could the brand new handheld Ramans be the rapid DNA of the drug world, where certainly we have agencies that are distributing Raman devices to their officers, but we also have laboratories discussing what if I provide the instrument in a portion or a room in my laboratory and train the officer to come in and then they can perform testing with my Raman instrument, just like I know that's a similar concept out there in some laboratories. So it's fascinating to see some of the parallels there. I'd like to cover one more subject, and that is kind of the resources available both from the committees and more broadly on information about rapid DNA. So, you know, I think of lab out, you know, X out in, in the world here in the United States. I know I've got a law enforcement agency who is using rapid DNA. So what resources and information is available out there that they can use to try to improve how the quality is done, the operations, and that kind of thing? Well, from the internal committee perspective, we found quite a bit of documentation that discusses uh, rapid DNA, and it's already published, already out there, from inside the laboratory. So you have the quality assurance standards, um, both for caseworking laboratories as well as the databasing laboratories, and there was a addendum that was put out to those, I believe, in 2014 that specifically discusses rapid DNA for single source samples within a laboratory and all of the standards that you would need to follow in order to be able to take those single source samples, those databasing samples that are worked in a laboratory using rapid DNA and put those up into the national database. So that document is out there. The FBI and the NDIS procedures also discuss what needs to happen from inside the laboratory in order to, again, put samples up into the DNA database. Again, inside the laboratory, we have our accreditation standards, we have our quality systems that talk about how do you validate different instruments, how do you train people within the laboratory, what are the expectations for competency, what are the expectations for proficiency testing. So from the internal committee, we found quite a few things that guide us from a laboratory. I think that's a little different with some of the other committees. From the external perspective, we're, you know, we're working on very similar documents, like one of our committee members is working on a version of the quality assurance standards that couldn't possibly be used in a law enforcement agency. So in other words, trying to calibrate, translate the language to in your office versus in your laboratory and from scientist to police officer, what have you, going through the quality assurance standards and making our own kind of external quality document. We're also working on kind of workflow documents like flow charts or process maps to say if you're adopting this technology, here's how the flow should go. And we're also looking at costing with those flow charts to say, okay, here's, here's how much it costs in the regular process. Here's how much it's going to cost you doing the rapid process. Because initially, as, as we get into these emerging technologies, they're going to be very expensive up front. And it's going to take a while before the economies of scale kick in to where they're affordable for laboratories and law enforcement. So our external committee, we're going to try and keep up with that costing so we can show laboratory directors and law enforcement agencies what those costs are to run those samples 
because some people may find that it's not very cost effective to be running these things at a, at right now a, a couple purchase. hundred dollars a sample, right? Whereas in our CODIS laboratories, we're doing them for 15, 20 bucks a sample. Yeah, that's an interesting point and one that's oftentimes lost in the the instruments aren't nearly as expensive as the printer cartridges, yeah. <laughs> as it were. Yeah, exactly. That's a good analogy, precisely. Going back to the, to the website briefly, so there's a few different places someone can find information on the ASCLAD website in varying levels of, of availability. ASCLAD's position statements on rapid DNA are in the policy library. They're open for everybody. Anybody can see what ASCLAD historically has believed about rapid DNA and how rapid DNA should be used as recently as last fall, last November, ASCLAD published a position statement on rapid DNA. So if you want to know what the organization and the board believes, that's out there. That's in the policy library on the website. As a member, there's a member toolkit that is currently sort of an initiative we're working on, I should probably say. The goal of the member toolkit would be to provide example policies, samples for ASCLAD members to be able to log in and essentially share resources one to another. Well, we're developing model policies, you know, that laboratories can adapt to their own use um, in their own jurisdiction. And then uh, we would like to set up a situation where someone could log into the member side of the website and share documents, SOPs, validation studies, um, and really learn from one another. Um, so that's in development, really, on the ASCLAD website. And then um, lastly, for training, anything we do to provide training, it's not really a document or an SOP, but it's also available on the ASCLAD website. You can go and see some of the trainings we've offered. And I'm sure as RAPID becomes more and more pervasive in its usage, that we'll have more and more up there. So there's several things on the website. I'm glad you brought it up that people can find. That's excellent. I appreciate that, and uh, one other note, because I know that one of the things that FTCOE did was the Rapid DNA workshop, and all of the presentations from that workshop are available archived on the uh, ForensicCOE.org website as well. And I hope uh, people look at the ASCLAD website and also ForensicCOE to try to, uh, to learn more about this as, as they need to. And if there's anybody out there who's listening who would like to participate <clears throat> on these committees, you can get a hold of any one of us, and we can certainly provide a path to you to participate or figure out a way that you can help. I mean, obviously, this is a we're not trying to have everyone get a slice of the pie. We're trying to grow the pie bigger so that everyone sure. can have enough. So, um, you know, there's, there's plenty of work for people to do out there, and we would love to have people get involved and, and help us answering some of the questions. A couple times a month, there's a new update, there's something else that's changing, there's a new option, somebody comes up with a new great idea, and we really want the conversation to continue to go, and, and we recognize that any documents that we do put up on the ASCLAD website will be documents that will be continually updated. There's no way that we will not need to update these multiple times in order to keep up with what's available. If a new vendor comes out that has something available, a new expert system that comes out that's now available, we decide to change DNA chemistries again, any of those things are going to require revisions of this. So this, I see this as a continuing effort on all of our parts. That's excellent. So Katie Featherston, Brian Hoey, and Jeremy Triplett. Thank you all for the work you're doing on Rapid DNA on your committees for ASCLED. And thank you, really, for being on Just Science. Thank you, Thank you for inviting us. <clears throat> thank you. And for the listeners, thank you for listening in with us today. Remember to give us lots of stars and recommendations on your podcast platform. And please tell your friends and colleagues about Just Science, the 
very unique opportunity to, for forensic science professionals to learn more about what's going on in, in forensic science, the real deal, from folks like Katie Bryan and, and Jeremy. And thank you so much for listening. Next week on Just Science, we will have Ben Swanholm to discuss millennial employees in the crime lab. If you have an interesting case and would like to be a guest on our next season, which will be recorded at the 2019 ASCLAD Symposium, please visit our podcast landing page at ForensicsCOE.org forward slash Just Science Podcast. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. Mm -hmm.